This is Healthcare Strategies. Hi, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. I'm Sarah Heath, Managing Editor at Excelligent Healthcare Media and the Lead Editor over on Patient Engagement, HIT.com. We're here today to talk about maternal morbidity and mortality and the stain it's left on the American healthcare system. In the US, the racial health disparities in maternal morbidity and mortality are staggering. The country has the widest gap in maternal mortality rates in the developed world and is one of the only nations for which that gap is getting wider. And while cultural competency and pushes for more health equity will be central in the effort to close those gaps, there are other tangible steps healthcare leaders must make to manage the clinical factors leading to maternal mortality. Case in point, preeclampsia, an issue of heightened blood pressure during pregnancy that comes in as the leading cause of maternal morbidity and mortality. Preeclampsia, which disproportionately affects black pregnant people, comes with it a number of knowledge gaps despite being somewhat preventable. Through thoughtful patient education and engagement, clinicians can reduce the risk that their patients and patients' babies will suffer from preeclampsia. Here to talk with us about that is Dr. Joanne Armstrong, an MPH who serves as Executive Medical Director and CMO for Women's Health and Genomics at CVS Health. Dr. Armstrong, thanks for joining us today. Nice to be here, Sarah. Maybe to start off, I know it's pretty clear and obvious that racial maternal morbidity and mortality disparity in the U.S., the CDC figure is that Black women are about three times as likely to die from pregnancy than white women. Can you talk to me a little bit about how preeclampsia and high blood pressure contribute to this disparity and some of the other data there? Uh, sure. So just, just to set the stage uh, for listeners, people have probably heard about this crisis of maternal morbidity and mortality, especially for Black women, but what does it really mean? How do you understand it in the communities that you live in? And some of the staggering facts out there are that Black women across the income spectrum and from all walks of life have worse outcomes in maternal and child health compared to their white counterparts. Black women are not protected based on education. Black women with the highest level of education fare worse than women who do not have high school diplomas. Black women who are normal weight, and, and weight is an important risk factor for how to think about maternal health outcomes. Black women who are of normal weight have worse outcomes than obese white women and Hispanic women. And Black women who live in the wealthiest zip codes have worse outcomes than white women and their counterparts that live in poorer communities. So there's something different that's happening about the experience of Black women when they enter our maternal care system. Some of it is risk factors and some of it is the environment in which um, both they live and in which they receive health care. So what are the proof points? What's the statistics that ground that? So you already talked about it, that Black women have about between two and three times the rate of maternal death compared to white women. And this is death during pregnancy and within 42 days of delivery, but it extends beyond that as well. Uh, that's only one measure of it. Uh, for every woman who dies, about 100 women will experience what's called severe maternal morbidity. And these are really bad and dangerous outcomes in pregnancy. So like stroke, sepsis, renal failure, pulmonary emboli. So Black women have two to three times the rate of severe maternal morbidity compared to white women. Their infants die at about twice the rate of white infants. And then when you look at sort of the major adverse things that bad things that can happen in pregnancy that are both bad and common, 
preterm birth, low birth weight. Black infants, for example, have twice the risk of being born preterm compared to white babies, a similar rate for low birth weight. And babies that are born early and babies that are born at low birth weights can um, have lifetime disabilities. In fact, it's a leading cause of disability for infants in this country. So it's not just a matter of being small and you catch up. Some babies don't catch up. So when you look at all of it, right, maternal mortality is the leading kind of the what they call, you know, the edge of the sphere. But there's lots of morbidity that's behind that. And it really sets the course for both moms and babies for their lifetime to really fulfill all of their potential. So there is a problem in maternal and child health, and that is differentially experienced for Black women. And then if you start rolling down, asking what are these differences, what are the important drivers of of bad health outcomes, and what things are preventable, Then you start sort of peeling it down into um, the causes. So, you know, hemorrhage, embolism, and it turns out preeclampsia is a really important cause of maternal death. Uh, Some of it is preventable, severe maternal morbidity, preterm birth, low birth weight. So when you look at these drivers, that's a place that you can naturally focus your attention. Um, And it turns out through very simple interventions, some of it is preventable. So that's sort of how we land it on all this effort that we're putting into uh, what's called preeclampsia. Yeah, I know you just mentioned because it is preventable. I wanted to hear a little bit more about kind of what made preeclampsia such a natural place to start addressing racial maternal mortality disparities, um, if there are any other details that you're able to expand upon. Sure. So again, just for the, you know, general audience listening, Preeclampsia is this kind of weird form of high blood pressure that really happens in pregnancy, but we don't have an analogous example when women are not pregnant. So it is a disease, not quite sure the cause of it, probably something related to abnormal vascular function in pregnancy, um, but it causes blood pressure to rise quickly and to quite dangerous levels. And when blood pressure rises to that level, bad things can happen like a stroke, cardiovascular disease, the placenta can become dysfunctional so that babies don't grow. So low birth weight, it can kind of shear off, um, cause what's called abruptions, and that gets babies into trouble. And um, uh, it can cause end organ problems like liver problems and renal problems and visual problems and stroke. And then importantly, it can go on to a severe form that's called preeclampsia, which is seizures. It's preeclampsia plus basically seizure um, disorder and, and ultimately maternal death from hypoxia and some other causes. So that's what preeclampsia is. It happens in pregnancy and it's kind of this weird thing. It happens really fast. So when you think about, you know, who's at risk for it? So obviously trying to prevent it is really important. About half the women with preeclampsia have some underlying risk factors. And if you know the underlying risk factors, it offers the possibility that you might be able to prevent it. And then the other half or so of women don't have any risk factors. And in that group, early recognition of symptoms so that you can get to a hospital and intervene, make sure that you're delivering in a safe place being taken care of by people who know how to handle this is really important. So there are really two um, areas to think about that that we've been thinking about. So one is thinking about women um, who have risk factors 
and talking to them, educating basically all women about risk factors, educating all women about uh, symptoms and the recognition of symptoms, and then um, educating all women about prevention strategies for those who are classified as being at risk or high risk for preeclampsia. So um, the tricky thing about the symptom recognition is that many of the symptoms are sort of kind of bread and butter things that happen in pregnancy, mild headache, you know, feet get swollen, um, but preeclampsia is really more than that. It's like a persistent headache that doesn't go away. It's a, you know, re- you know, it's not just weight gain, which almost all pregnant women gain weight. It's the rapid increase in weight gain, it's significant swelling in your feet, and then some visual um, problems, um, sort of dots, and it's called scotomata in your, your eyes. So recognizing that these symptoms are happening is important. Recognizing what abnormal blood pressure readings are is important, right? So that you can raise your hand early and make sure that your physician is hearing you. And then recognizing who starts out with these underlying risk factors for preeclampsia is very important and they are really pretty common. So, you know, I should say we started in the beginning, like how common is this? About four to 8% of all pregnant women have preeclampsia. The rate of preeclampsia has been increasing about 25% over the last 10 years. So it's increasing in the population. Some of that is due to the underlying increase in the rate of the risk factors that are there. And then why do we think about this? It's important for all pregnant women, but why are we sensitive to this in Black women? And the answer for that is that Black women are about 60% more likely to have preeclampsia and to have more severe forms of preeclampsia. So recognition of symptoms and prevention strategies are important for everybody, but particularly in that um, in that group of women. Yeah, I, I think that will probably wrap into my next question pretty nicely, too, because I know that there are a lot of kind of knowledge gaps out there um, and how there are some challenges in educating patients about preeclampsia. So if you wanted to talk to me about some of those knowledge gaps and then um, you could even fold in some of the information about the risk factors um, and other prevention strategies, that would be really helpful. Sure. So there is a knowledge gap about what preeclampsia is, right? That it's not just sort of normal little blood pressure problems in pregnancy and how significant it can be. So that's number one. There is a knowledge gap about what the symptoms are. And we just talked about that, like how you distinguish preeclampsia-related symptoms from just the things that happen in normal physiology and pregnancy. And then there is a knowledge gap about understanding whether you yourself have risk factors for preeclampsia. And we've done some surveying of our own membership, uh, looking at women who um, we know have underlying risk factors for preeclampsia versus their self-reported understanding that they have risk factors. And our data about uh, three out of every 10 or four out of every 10 women don't recognize some of the risk factors that they have themselves. So what are those risk factors? Women who've had preeclampsia in a prior pregnancy, it tends to recur. So that's important. Women who have underlying hypertension come into pregnancy with high blood pressure. Women who have diabetes, either gestational diabetes, the type that develops because you are pregnant or pregestational diabetes. And then women who have underlying kidney disease or um, connective tissue diseases like lupus. So those are considered major risk factors that if any of those things apply to you, then that is you are at risk for developing preeclampsia. Then there are a set of what are called moderate risk factors um, where if you have two of those, you're also at risk for preeclampsia. And those moderate risk factors 
are things like delivering after the age of 35, being obese, having a sister or a, a close relative who they, they had uh, preeclampsia, women who, um, whose pregnancy is a result of in vitro fertilization is a risk factor. And then this, this other bucket that can apply to many, but not all, um, all uh, Black women, which is um, having social stress, and that's sort of defined somewhat broadly, it could be economic stress, social stress, environmental stress, and then um, uh, being Black or African-American is also a moderate risk factor. So two of those also put you at risk. And these are, I'd say, risk factors that um, maybe get less attention in a physician's office, maybe less discussion about it. So some women may have those risk factors, but not really appreciate that they have them. So those are some of the major gaps. And I should say the other major one that we see in our own data is a recognition about what prevention strategies are. And so that takes us to this question of, you know, what are they and, and where is the opportunity to really do some good to decrease the, the occurrence of preeclampsia? What are they and what can we do to reduce them? Um, no, but I, I do want to hear about kind of the CVS Health educational campaign and, and what you all did for intervention strategies to reduce the risk of preeclampsia. Right. So that takes us into what is the intervention or prevention strategy. And, um, you know, a key one is the use of low dose aspirin and low dose means, you know, 81 milligrams of aspirin in pregnancy starting in the first trimester, ideally before 16 weeks, but up through 28 weeks of pregnancy. And then you continue that taking it once a day through the end of pregnancy. It is a recommendation of all the major professional colleges, meaning all the, all the expert societies, the ACOG physician, you know, the College of Obstetricians, Gynecologists, SMFM, March of Dimes, the Preventive Services Task Force. So it is a standard recommendation. There's very good quality data that shows that it can reduce the risk of preeclampsia by about a third. It is really easy to, to take. It is safe in pregnancy. It doesn't cause birth defects. There are only a very small number of types of conditions for where women shouldn't take aspirin, like people who are allergic to aspirin. It doesn't cause problems in pregnancy, so it's considered quite safe. And it is recommended for women who have and know that they have either one of these high risks or two of these moderate risk factors. So again, it gets back to this issue of symptom recognition. And then from like a public health point of view, it costs very, very little. It's about $4 for a whole course of treatment. And you compare that to other interventions in medicine. In fact, it is covered under almost all insurance plans. The barrier is recognizing what the value is and how do you make sure that you bring patients into this conversation. So how do you bring patients into the conversation, right? For most guidelines that are recommended by professional colleges, it can take up to 17 years, 17 years for those to be adopted uniformly in medical practice. And this is a relatively new guideline. So what we did at CVS Health is to ask, is this a really important medical problem to try to intervene on? Yes, it is. Is it differentially experienced by different populations? Yes, it is. Is there an intervention that is safe, effective, recommended? Yes, it is. How can we shorten that timeline to adoption? Well, the literature in our own experience says that while the level of understanding about what preeclampsia is, is pretty good, three out of four women know what it is. What starts falling down is really understanding like symptom recognition and how preeclampsia specifically works in this space. 
And some of these barriers are kind of amplified in Black patients. So what we sought to do is actually close all of that. Great. And do you want to just kind of walk me through what it kind of looked like, how you guys flagged potential people who should be part of the intervention, sure. all of those good details about it? Sure. So we started by recognizing that not everybody will even recognize that they have risk factors. We also recognize that our own data systems may not accurately code. We have a really sophisticated and talented group of data scientists that can build models for us to identify all women, for example, that appear to be at risk for preeclampsia because we can see that they have hypertension or diabetes or even a past pregnancy with preeclampsia. But there are certain other factors that you just can't see. Obesity, for example, is poorly coded. Social stress is not a typical field that we see in our data systems. So we started with the premise that all women could use some education about what this uh, disorder is and that there are guidelines about how to treat it. And I should say that we worked with the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine to create um, educational content that included the description of what preeclampsia is, how to recognize the symptoms so people can raise their hand early if they have them, what the specific risk factors are for preeclampsia, so a checklist. Um, some information about low-dose aspirin and its safety and the uh, safety profile and, and um, how it's used. And really importantly, the call to action in everything we did was to say, take this information and bring it to your doctor so that you can have shared decision-making and decide if this is right for you. But we know that it takes a long time to adopt recommendations. So you can be an active partner, right, in this discussion with your physician. So all patients got this uh, level of education and outreach. We then said, we know that one of the barriers, and there's good behavioral health literature that says sometimes just bringing sort of a prompt, if you will, to a physician office can help stimulate a conversation. So what could be transformative here is to say, why don't we educate broadly, actually supply a bottle of low-dose aspirin to people for whom we can see in our claims data that they have risk factors that would potentially support using low-dose aspirin and create a really nice packet of education, so education checklist, and then ultimately the bottle of aspirin with a call to action to say, please take it to your physician and go over your own checklist with your physician, have your physician add anything else that you may not be aware of, and then have shared decision-making about whether this is right for you. So um, we did this for all women for whom we could see they have risk factors. Those women also got information from the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. So we had you know, real expert content preceding this. So we started this work and we designed a really nice, I think very compelling sort of kit of information that sort of takes patients successfully, you know, successively through these layers of information, ultimately with a bottle of aspirin. So we started last July, early August, and we've mailed about 1,700 kits out a month for the year to women, again, with risk factors and everybody else without recognized risk factors got education. And then we did some qualitative and quantitative reviews to uh, sort of ask a few key questions, like what did people learn? Did it make a difference in terms of teeing up a conversation or even starting aspirin if it made sense? Great. And do you want to discuss with me some of the results that you guys saw out of this intervention? Yes, a few things. Um, you know, when we look at sort of what is baseline knowledge, it's not bad. 60, 65% or so of women had some information about preeclampsia, but less so about the value of aspirin 
to reduce the risk of preeclampsia. Most women today get their information from their physician as it should be, but it raises the question of if you're not getting that, then how do you know about it? So it turns out that about 40% of women reported that they talked to their doctor about this risk factor checklist and the aspirin as a direct result of getting this material in the mail. And importantly, for self-identified Black women, the rate was about 52%. So relatively speaking, about 30% higher for Black women. And that's not really surprising when you look at the literature about health communications in maternal child health care that a lot of Black women report that communications sort of fall down in the office. Now, implicit bias, non-implicit bias, different levels of power when you walk into a physician office, a whole range of things can make the voices and the experiences of Black women tamped down so they're not completely heard in these settings. And I think that, you know, the, the published literature and some of the results we see here actually speak to that, that this was particularly impactful for Black women as sort of a tool. The other key finding was that about 40% of women um, thought that they did not have risk factors for preeclampsia. That's despite some of the data that we have in our systems that say they probably do. Now, can you have incorrect coding so we have it wrong? That's possible. But it's also possible that there is not an appreciation that some of these other moderate risk factors, when they're combined, are problematic. So those were um, two really important findings. We also asked about the utility overall, this whole campaign of education and the kits to empower action. How valuable was it for Black women? The rate was much, much higher. So you know, 81% of Black women rated it as a 10, meaning this is really a knowledge gap that was particularly important for them. So we actually used that experience to regroup. We involved our Black employee resource group and a range of other voices to ask if we were to redesign this for Black women, put extra emphasis on Black women, what would that look like? So we modified it, more enhanced content, trying to amplify a women to use their voices, like that is their superpower when they go into an office. It doesn't feel right, doesn't sound right, it's not right. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. I think that the information provided was just totally invaluable. So I truly appreciate you hopping on and chatting with me about this. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Listeners, we'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. Feel free to reach out to us at sheath at intelligentmedia.com to share your thoughts. You can also use that email to let us know if there are any other healthcare industry related questions or stories you would like us to consider covering. And if you liked this episode and it sparked some thoughts for you, please head over to Apple to give us a few stars and a positive review. Thanks for listening. This has been an Intelligent Healthcare Media production.